it is said rightly in many cases that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. I think most parents understand this. You hear the report that your teenager has not only cleaned his room, but he's also cleaned the kitchen without you asking. And there's no way you will believe that unless you see it for yourself. The miraculous. Only seeing is believing. It it refers to a claim that's so incredible, you will not believe it unless you see it with your own eyes, no matter what others have told you. You've, you've known this in other ways in your life. Maybe the first time you saw mountains, Alps, or some great beauty in nature, or maybe you watched someone perform in a concert or an athletic event. You'd heard about it, but then you saw it, and it was beautiful. Sight is so often connected with belief in our world. Now, this isn't new. It was critical to the spread of, the, of Christianity, to the, to the rise of this new institution in the world, the church. You know, there's no other credible explanation in the world, historically, for those of us that like history, for the rise of this thing called the church where Jews and Gentiles started to come together, other than this fact, people saw the risen Christ And then people believed what they said about the risen Christ. Their testimony about Jesus of Nazareth being raised from the dead was heard and believed on. This morning, we are finishing John 20. John 20, 24 to 31. And we'll see what we've just considered. After Jesus was raised from the dead, for better and for worse, seeing was connected to believing. Why? That we might believe, the very one we do not see. So turn to John 20, and I'm going to read verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Here's the main point you should get from this text. In the scriptures, you have all that you need to see, to believe, and have life in Jesus. In the scriptures, you have all that you need to see, to believe, and to have life in Jesus. We'll work through this section, seeing the two scenes, the two pericopes, if you were, as it were, that are here. Number one, Thomas's faith. Thomas's faith. Verses 24 through 29. Thomas's faith. After Jesus was raised from the dead, you might think he would have taken it easy. He had just been raised from the dead. He just defeated death. He just accomplished salvation. But in his resurrection, Jesus is working. He chose to go to Mary Magdalene. He chose to go to the other disciples. Not all of the disciples were together that first Easter evening. Thomas, called the twin, your version, may say Didymus, which is just the Greek translation of Thomas. Thomas is the Aramaic, but both mean twin. We've met Thomas in this gospel. We did back in chapter 11 in the account of Lazarus, Lazarus being raised from the dead. It was Thomas who said to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He was speaking of Jesus who was going back into a region in which it was assumed because of the opposition to him that he would be killed. Thomas had showed tremendous courage to follow Jesus, even though he thought it would be his sure death. He had no idea that in following Jesus that day, it would lead to resurrection, Lazarus's resurrection. And it's here in this text when Thomas doubted that he earned the nickname that has forever stuck with him. In Thomas's life and God's providence, he wasn't there that first Easter evening when the risen Jesus appeared to his disciples. Have you ever had FOMO? It stands for fear of missing out. Surely this was the greatest FOMO situation ever. Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why. It's strange that Thomas wasn't there. It, it was truly the first Lord's day of this new creation age. And so just see this, how much is missed, how much can be missed for the good of your soul when we miss gathering with other disciples. What joy, what feasting Thomas missed on that Sunday. You need the fear of missing out when it comes to the gathered church. You want to grow in Jesus Christ? Commit to always gathering with the church. Jesus' disciples, you never know what the Lord intends to do in your soul eternally through that sermon, 
through the gathering, as much as it lies in your power, come, gather. Over a lifetime of very ordinary gatherings, the Lord does extraordinary things in the lives of his people. Christ will grow you. And it was there that the disciples told Thomas what they had seen with their own eyes. Can you imagine? We have seen the Lord. Now, maybe there was an intervening conversation that Thomas had. John doesn't report that. He doesn't tell us everything we want to know to satisfy our curiosity. John is concerned to cause us to believe, but not Thomas. Thomas said in response, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger into the mark, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so with those words, Thomas would forever be known as doubting Thomas. Testimony he heard from men he trusted and knew was not enough. Unless I see unless I see that Jesus you saw was the Jesus that was actually crucified for Thomas, seeing even Jesus was not enough. He needed to touch, place his hand and his fingers into the marks, his hand into the side. Unless he gets all of that, Thomas says, I will never believe. Thomas heard the testimony of the disciples, the would-be apostles. He refused to believe what they credibly said they saw. Thomas doubted. And my guess is some of you are sympathetic with Thomas. It is a massive claim the disciples made. Resurrections are not normal. Thomas had seen the resurrection of Lazarus. He wouldn't believe this. If you doubt, I want to hopefully help you see something else. And that is this, that in his doubt, Thomas believed. And what do I mean? Thomas doubted what they said, but he was positively believing something else. He had faith in something else. In saying, I will never believe that, he was also saying, I believe this. What Thomas believed, which was that Jesus was not raised and they had seen him, was more credible to him than what he doubted. So it would be a mistake if you don't see doubting Thomas as believing Thomas. Doubt is simply always faith in some alternative. Thomas's bar for belief was his own sight and touch. So doubt in one belief is faith in another. I doubt your claim that you can run a 5K in 14 minutes because I don't believe it's possible based on my knowledge of how impossible that is for me. So my doubt And the plausibility of your claim is greater or is, in your belief, is not as great as my belief in what I know to be true about myself, the alternative. Whatever you doubt, whether it's the resurrection of Jesus, maybe you doubt the deity of Jesus, 
you need to press yourself to examine that. What is on the other side of that? What do you really believe? And then ask yourself what the standards are that you have for affirming that belief. I think it's easy to always be the constant skeptic, the one who sits in the back of the room and is always poking holes, thinking that you see everything better than the rest of us who've been duped. But what's on the other side of your doubt? What do you believe? And will that stand up to the strict scrutiny that you give to everything else? Your uncertainty is resting on belief. You have a uncertainty or a certainty that uncertainty is what's reasonable, that that's most logical. Is that warranted? Why? Thomas doubted the credibility of his fellow disciples' firsthand testimony because he said he would only believe if he saw him and touched him. Now, I want to say this to my brothers and sisters as well. You should question your doubts. Some of you doubt God loves you. Some of you doubt that God, the risen Christ, is who he says he is. So is what you're positively believing about God more credible than what God has said to you in his word? Thomas wouldn't take the word of his fellow disciples. You're not taking the word that God has given you in his scriptures. Is what you feel about God more trustworthy than what God has said about himself? Take God at his word. Question your doubts. Examine them. Interrogate them. Talk to someone about your doubts honestly. I mean, even as I'm preaching this, I'm thinking of people that have helped me along the way with doubt. How thankful I personally am, how freeing it is to grow in faith, thinking, understanding. At the bottom of all of our doubts, we will find there is something that we believe that is more credible. Now, you know why this is important. Because doubt paralyzes you. Uncertainty keeps you from moving forward. If you're trusting in Christ, Jesus, the risen Jesus, wants you to know the certainty of living in the freedom of simply trusting him. It never gets old to me to watch a little child when their parent walks into a room. They run to their parents. They don't have to be taught that. They know freedom and protection and certainty concepts they can't even articulate simply because they trust their parents. You as a Christian are meant to live in that certainty. You're meant to just trust the word of your good father. We've sung this. What more can he say to you than he has said? Believe him. Thomas ruled belief out unless he himself saw and touched the risen Jesus. What do you demand of Jesus? Is that reasonable? Thomas would not believe in that moment. Now, thankfully, while Thomas was done with Jesus, Jesus was not done with Thomas. Verse 26, eight days later, it's the following Sunday. The counting begins on the first day, the previous Sunday. Personally, there's so much I want to know about that intervening week. 
John doesn't tell us. Not much time had passed, but enough time had passed such that the disciples weren't going to be in Jerusalem much longer. Remember, they went there for the Passover, and that's coming to an end. And even though they had seen the risen Jesus, here they are behind locked doors in Jerusalem when once again the risen Jesus, most likely miraculously, comes to them and says, Peace be with you. Assalamu alaikum. His resurrection was the proof he had secured peace. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The risen Jesus purposely went to and he found Thomas. And notice he knew exactly what it was Thomas needed. He's raised from the dead. He's the strong Jesus, no longer suffering. He condescends to this weak, doubting disciple. He personally went to the cross to save. He personally goes to Thomas to save. Now, before I get to Thomas, I want you to consider Jesus, his goodness, who he is as the one who sympathizes with Thomas in this weakness. He does not put him down. He's not angry with him. He goes to him in his weakness and he meets him in it. With all of this power, the risen Jesus uses all of it for good, for his own. He's not out to get vengeance. He would have been right in that. He will be right when he brings just and righteous vengeance. He's out to bring salvation. Thomas, touch me here. Put your hand here. Of course, in telling him to touch him, we know that Thomas sees him. And don't overlook what Jesus is telling Thomas to touch. The scars, the scars are there. Right now, the resurrected and risen and glorified Jesus still has scars. He's not ashamed of these scars. They are a permanent part of his glory. And these scars say to the world, he's not ashamed of the cross. The cross which the world rejects and sees as shame, Jesus is bearing its scars forever. For all eternity, if you're going to see Jesus and glory in Jesus, you must glory in the scars the cross that put him there. Even in his resurrected state, Jesus will not let you or anyone see him apart from the cross. He is determined to find Thomas, to forgive Thomas. If this is who he is after he was raised, this is who he is now that he has ascended. We who have trusted in Jesus Christ, our weakness, our joylessness, our struggles do not annoy him. He's filled with compassion for us. He uses all of his power for the good of his own. He died for us while we were sinners. He's not surprised that sin is your struggle. If you think hard, hard, hard thoughts of the risen Jesus, if you somehow believe he's not who he says he is, what 
reason do you have for that? Notice the consistency of his character before the cross, after the cross, in his resurrection. Who he is in his character, his person, has not changed. He is the same as the writer to the Hebrews says. Yesterday, today, forever, he meets Thomas in his unbelief. And when the risen Jesus sets out to save a man, not even unbelief will stop him. That's what happened. Verse 28, Thomas believed. My Lord and my God. Thomas saw him. Thomas believed. For Thomas, seeing was believing. That's been a connection in this gospel. Seeing and believing. That when the Gentiles said we would see Jesus, Jesus immediately began to speak of the cross. When John, Jesus saw Nathaniel in John 1, he wanted to know if he believed in him. And he said, by believing, you will see even greater things. Nicodemus comes to him by night, cannot see the light of the world. And of course, the blind man, John 9, Jesus miraculously gives him physical sight and spiritual sight while the Pharisees remained blind. This confession by Thomas is the evidence of his conversion. The refusal to believe, to confessing my Lord and my God. This is one of the clearest texts in the entire New Testament of the deity of Jesus. How did John begin his gospel? He began by revealing to us the one who was the word with God and who is God. And Jesus is God who has disclosed, made known the Father to the world. And now this gospel is coming to its end and Thomas confesses that Jesus is his Lord and his God. And notice Jesus does not correct him as the angels do when they are wrongly worshiped. Thomas believes, and by believing, he found life in the name of Jesus. That's what the resurrection demands of all of us. That's what the resurrection frees us to, that we say of Jesus, we say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. So by purposely including Thomas's unbelief for all the world to see, John means for you to have no doubt, no doubt that the only reason John Thomas ever believed was because he saw the risen Christ. That's the only way to explain his movement from unbelief to belief. Many others saw him as well. And that's meant to make you doubt your doubts such that you say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Notice, see this very clearly. The resurrection was not a private help, a private thing done in a corner. It's a public reality now in the universe. The resurrection means Jesus right now has authority over everything, unlike anything on the planet. And that authority is the authority you were 
made for. When Thomas made this confession, he came into freedom, not slavery. Christian is the one who's come to Christ and paradoxically finds freedom by living under his authority. Now, one of the great evidences that we live in a world filled with sin is the suspicion of authority and the abuse of authority. Authority is good. Authority used rightly gives life. It leads to your flourishing. So for you as a Christian, when you know the authority and you're bound to the authority of Christ, you live in freedom. Bind yourself to Christ's authority by obeying him through his word. Find freedom in that. That's the life of the disciple. And that's the freedom in the life Thomas found in the risen Christ. And Jesus responds, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's contrasting those who would see him in the first century and the rest of us. We're not in a lesser place. We are those we heard about in 1 Peter 1 last week. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Isn't that true? We love him, and we've never seen him. Long before there was ever Zoom or emails or any modern technology, there was this thing called pen pals. You could actually develop a relationship with someone you'd never met and could not see by simply writing letters to each other. A long distance over a long time. And you could come to love someone you'd never met, that you were absolutely sure was alive, even though you'd never seen them. By his word, we've come to know and to love the risen Jesus. We know who he is. We know what he is like. We know he's not playing tricks on us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Every true Christian, man, we've not seen him physically, but we've seen him spiritually. And we see him by faith. We know him. We grow in our knowing of him. We don't see him, but we see this whole world by him. C.S. Lewis said this so well. I believe in Christianity, or you could say Christ, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Brothers and sisters, very soon faith is going to turn to sight. And when you see him, you will see he is the very one in whom you believed, whom you've known. He's everything he said he is. But for now, we have his word and we have everything we need to believe. Let's be to each other those who are giving to each other the word helping each other to see and to follow Jesus, who keep reminding each other of who we really are in the unseen heavenly realm based on what the word tells us because this word more than the world gives us everything we need to live in this world. Christ has revealed himself here for your faith and your faithfulness. Thomas's faith transformed 
by the risen Christ. Secondly, here we see John's purpose, Thomas's faith and John's purpose, verses 30 and 31. Now, it's my hope as we come to these two verses, you've heard them weave in regularly throughout this sermon series. John tells us here why he's written this. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has carefully put this gospel together. The first half of the gospel, 1 through 12, consists of signs. And then the second half is his farewell discourse, and then this passion narrative, his life, his death, his resurrection, his trial, all of that. And remember, with this purpose statement, John is not trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? He's answering, who is the Christ, the Son of God? And his answer is Jesus. And he says, end of this chapter, there's many signs not written in this book, so Jesus did more than is at least contained in John. It may be that he understands Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain those. But here, what is written are, as John argues, enough. What are the signs? Well, let me just say what a sign is in general. A sign signifies. It signifies. Symbols point to reality, not something not real. So if I want to signify, sign to the world that I am in a covenant marriage with Jenny, I wear this ring. And it symbolizes something, as all men that wear rings signal, signalize, signal, and that is we're married. Uh, there is in the United States, if your car blinker stops working, it's been a long time since I've had to think about this, you can signal that you're going to turn with your hands. I think this is what you do out your window you're going to go left. And that's what you do if you're going to go right. Point is, don't, don't test me on that. The point is, it's a signal that something real is about to happen. It's a sign. And John here has signs that point to reality. What are they? There's seven of them. John 2, 1 to 11, Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He was giving the sign that he is the ruler of the material universe who has turned low-grade water into high-quality wine. For anyone that would see Jesus was signaling, I'm ushering in the age of new wine. The end of John 4, he healed an official son. Again, he's out in Cana, and he did it by not going to the boy, but declaring to the official his son would live. What was the sign? By his word, as only God can do, Jesus gives life. He has authority over sickness. John 5, 1 to 15, he healed a man, a lame man on the Sabbath. He said, get up, take your bed, walk. On the Sabbath, the religious leaders were angry. He did this and Jesus declared, my father is working until now and I am working. What was, his, what was he signaling? Like God, I have authority over the Sabbath. Jesus was saying, I'm equal with God. And just like God who fed his people miraculously in the wilderness, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people in John 6. 
Jesus declared, I am the bread of life that satisfies. John 9, he healed the man born blind. He gave him sight physically and spiritually. And John 11, the climax of the signs, he raised Lazarus from the dead and so signaled to the world, I am the omnipotent creator who by his word called the dead to life. Just as God did when he spoke the whole world into existence. Lazarus obeyed. He came out. Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He did, he does what only God can do. And if you're considering who Jesus is or what you you think of Jesus, I really would challenge you to take the time to read this whole gospel. It would take you a little over an hour. Read about these signs. Read what Jesus was teaching about himself in the midst of all of them. Consider this argument from John. You know, for centuries, people have been reading John. And even though they didn't see the resurrected Christ, like Thomas, they believed in Jesus. They confessed, my Lord and my God. That's why John recorded these signs. They weren't random. They had a point that you would believe. John also includes witnesses in this gospel. John the Baptist, Jesus himself, God the Father, the scriptures, which Jesus said, bear witness about me. And John taught that Jesus must rise from the dead according to the scriptures. And Jesus promised the spirit, the spirit of truth who would come and bear witness about him. And of course, Jesus' own disciples. That's what John's doing here as a disciple in this gospel. He's witnessing to Jesus that you might believe. Signs and witnesses. And I hope that all of us see how seriously John takes us. He takes your life seriously. He takes your faith seriously. He takes your eternity seriously. You know, for writing this, there wasn't a book deal for John. I mean, he, he's, he ends up on the wrong side of the Roman government, alone on an island called Patmos. But John knew Jesus and he loved him and he saw him in the flesh and he touched him and he wanted the world to know and to love Jesus and to be sure he was God's Messiah, God's son in whom you find life. And of course, the ultimate sign, his life, his death, his resurrection. We've spent weeks slowly considering this. Ultimately, Jesus came to be lifted up, to die on a cross and to be raised, to be lifted up from the grave. So if you're to see Jesus, to believe in him as the Christ, you must see his glory in the cross. Oh, consider these facts. God the Son came into human history in the flesh and he took on human form and he has done what only God can do in taking away sin By his life, he fulfilled the righteous requirements God has of his creatures, and he paid the penalty of sin that we owe. And God raised him to signal to the world, this man is who he has said he is. He is the Christ, the Son of God, and he has accomplished salvation, and he is alive. We're not just witnesses in this gospel. There were many credible witnesses who gave up their own lives because they saw the resurrected Christ. Will you believe in Christ? What does it mean to believe in Christ? Confessionally, we hold that justifying faith consists of knowledge, assent, and trust. 
knowledge of the gospel, who Jesus is as he's revealed himself, what he's done, why he's done it. You must know facts. Secondly, you move beyond knowledge to assent. You must agree with these facts, assent to the truthfulness of them. But even that is not true justifying faith. Demons know and assent to the facts, but they refuse to trust. They refuse to confess my Lord and my God. You must trust. You must, as the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession says so well, receive and rest on Christ and his righteousness. Receive and rest. Turn from works righteousness, rest in Christ righteousness. I find that beautiful. Who else offers you salvation on those terms? That's what's bound up in saying, my Lord and my God. Jesus is the credible and worthy place for your faith. And by coming to him, you will have life in his name. And brothers and sisters, the gospel is not just meant for those who don't believe, but to strengthen the faith for you who do. As you've read this gospel, you have seen Jesus is who he says he is. Objectively, you've seen that John has carefully recounted the work of Jesus as only an eyewitness can. You've seen that many saw him in his resurrected state. You've heard his teaching. And subjectively, the Spirit is bearing witness to your soul that your faith is not in vain. Yes, seeing is believing. But your believing is leading to more seeing. I think one of the great benefits to this right here, this, is that after each week when we live in a world that is very satisfied to simply ignore the reality of the risen Christ, we come here together and the truth reigns. We worship in spirit and truth. We are reminded, we're stirred up. Yeah, what we believe is true. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Your faith is not in vain. Some of you are even at this moment walking through something costly because you believe in Jesus. He's worth it. He will prove his goodness to you in that trial. Some of you wrestle with particular sin that you believe is better than Jesus, that its promises are better than Jesus. Jesus gives you life that satisfies you at the deepest level of your soul. He offers you living water. It makes the stuff that you're so tempted to run after paltry. He will quench your thirst. Have we as we've walked through this gospel, have you not just seen again and again the promises he makes that who he is is better and greater than we could fathom? He doesn't underwhelm us. Your faith is in the Christ, the Son of God, raised from the dead, whose love for you even now is marked by scars. Keep believing. You will see him more and more clearly until this Age of faith is over, and the age of sight is ushered in. The church in the first generation was built on the deposit of those who saw the resurrected Jesus. And we base our faith based on their word until we see. 
but we will enjoy what they enjoyed. We will see him in the age of resurrection. We will see the scars and he will see us. We will know him. We will be known by him. Brothers and sisters, believe on the word of our Lord and God. Blessed are you who have not seen and still believe. For by believing, you know life in his name.